Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. Joining us from Portland, Oregon, is Shane Burley, the author of Fascism Today what it is and how to end it. Thanks for joining us, Shane. Well, thanks for having me on. Now, Shane, I noticed the, the name of your book, What It Is and How to End It. Uh, it's very similar to Trotsky's fascism, What It Is and How to Fight It. <laughs> you one-upping Trotsky there. Um, I was not echoing Trotsky, um, unless my editor was who, who first came up with the idea. I, I think that there is... Uh, there's a, there's a number of books that kind of kind of come at it from this angle of like present the problem present the solution mine is very different than trotsky's but i guess it's a you know common mission i noticed you uh your book has a 4.2 on goodreads and trotsky only has 3.9 so it looks like you've won oh yeah i've definitely won i've been i've been watching that in my long battle with trotsky <sighs> shane you've also authored some uh, articles recently one of which was published in Commune Mag about uh, the alt-right and its fate, especially since 2017. I guess the argument is that the alt-right has failed on one level but possibly succeeded on another. Can you elaborate on that a little? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the alt-right really reached some kind of unprecedented level for like an above ground white nationalist movement in 2015, 2016, and, and most of 2017, we're talking about really large public conferences, really large uh, social movements. People kind of forget that a thousand white nationalists came out to Charlottesville. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people in one of the most reviled ideologies in modern memory. So it's, it, you have to really understand how successful it was. Dozens of organizations, podcasts that were so popular that people were actually trying to advertise with them. I mean, we we're talking about a really, really big kind of um, uh, uh, shift in what they were, what was possible for them. And it was something they had built up for years. And then it hit them back really quickly within about a year. They were deplatformed on everything uh, or, you know, counter organizers shut them down at every place they went. They couldn't really go out anymore. They were being shut off of all their financial platforms. And so in the last couple of years, we've actually seen them really get hit back. And I'm talking about the leadership, the formal organizations, the publications. So they've taken huge hits. So I, I opened the piece talking about Richard Spencer's new show, where he essentially argues about dick pics and, and other kind of pop culture phenomenon. It used to be that he likened himself to a philosopher or an academic of some sort, but things have pretty much kind of devolved for the alt-right. 
and what they're actually capable of. There, there was a moment in time when they were getting interview requests and stuff, and now they're just on the back channels of YouTube. So I think things have shifted a lot. But the reality is that a lot of what they had fought for has become pretty mainstream. Uh, a lot of the ideas, particularly about Muslim folks or immigration, uh, kind of a, a, a latent white identity, that has been mainstreamed very, very well. And it's not just because of them. It's because that stuff was an undercurrent of, uh, you know, the white American base already. But they definitely helped push it into public acceptability. And then, of course, Trump and national populism and uh, all the figures in that circle just basically instituted that into White House policy and are continuing to push things in that direction, not just in the U.S., but as national populist and fascist movements do across the globe. I associate uh, many of the leading figures within the alt-right, like Spencer, as being more educated, more middle class. I understand Spencer attended uh, Duke University, for example. And I'm wondering if you can speak to the kind of, I guess, the class dimensions of the movement. Do you understand it as being, you know, do you understand it as a middle class or petty bourgeois phenomenon? And how does that relate to what's generally presented as being the image of the white nationalists in the United States as being of a more uh, proletarian character. Yeah, I so, so it is definitely a much more petty bourgeois um, and kind of upper middle income dynamic um, as compared with what we think of as American white nationalism, which is you know, the Klan or, um, you know, Southern gentry of some, some kind. What Spencer did is not remarkably new. Uh, there is older versions of it. And in fact, a lot of the institutions that make up the alt-right as part of that big tent, the big tent being what was kind of a coalescing around the website Alternative Right starting in 2010, uh, those institutions actually go back, some of them years before that. Uh, so we're talking about the, the anti-immigrant website VDARE, or we're talking about American Renaissance, which was a white nationalist conference and publication newsletter that was around uh, from the early 90s forward. Um, and then a lot of the kind of antecedents um, that kind of developed had that same kind of dynamic. And if actually we look at some of the, the movements that fed it, um, they go back even further. Paleoconservatism is kind of a dissident movement inside the GOP against neoconservatives. So kind of an old right, isolationist, uh, extremely social conservative, that kind of thing. Or the European movements that kind of fed it, the European New Right, which is sort of metapolitical, fascist, philosophical movement that goes back to the 60s. So it's not particularly new. Um, I think it's that it was able to meld with the culture at just the right time. And frankly, we're in a place now where uh, to proliferate as a movement, you have to appeal in a lot of ways to a broad, educated cross-section. So like movements today are built in ways that are just fundamentally different than they were 20 or 30 years ago. Social movements of all kinds, of all kinds of political stripes. And so now to build a broad kind of mass popular base, you do it by pumping out a, a great deal of, of content online, creating more diffuse social networks so you can develop organizations from there. And so they're able to do that by taking a lot of the tech knowledge and their you know, clean cut appearance and their ability to code language and basically ease a large public into it. And so that's really what Spencer's kind of genius was, was that he was good at presenting himself. He was good at um, bringing together a larger cross-section under those ideas. But the ideas themselves really weren't different. And I think what's important about talk when we're talking about the alt-right 
And I think it's first off important to call it the alt-right. Uh, and it's because what it is is a particular style of white nationalist politics. But there was white nationalism before him, and there will be white nationalism after them because that runs a lot deeper. Alt-right is just a particular manifestation of it. And so that's what I was trying to get at in the commune piece. Is that like while this stage may have hit um, its end or, or close to its end, uh, it, it may still re- revive itself. It, it, it remains to be seen. But even if it does hit its end, um, its legacy continues on. Something you've also written about, uh, you wrote a recent piece for Full Stop magazine about uh, Arctos publishing in Countercurrents, but uh, you also tackle this in your book. Some of the things that the alt-right are looking at are politics you could only describe as esoteric, things like uh, the Kali Yuga and this, you know, these idea of grand Aryan eras. Uh, how does that sort of fit in with the their desire to you know build a mass movement when you've got these really strange ideas underpinning a lot of it? Yeah, uh, a lot of mass movements have really strange ideas underpinning them. Um, you know, one thing that kind of came up when looking at at Arctos, and this is true about Countercurrents as well. Both of those are very are large white nationalist publishers or publishers associated with the alt-right or what's called radical traditionalism or kind of racial paganism. There's a bunch of kind of esoteric streams of white nationalist thought on which they published. But it kind of reminded me of when people talk about books on Juche and the way that there's all these volumes um, uh, published in North Korea about Juche and the theory goes that people put them on their wall and they look at them and they marvel at the, you know, the philosophical content of the leadership. Look how smart they are. They have all these books and the books are very dense and very complicated and very academic, uh, but no one reads them. Um, and I think, you know, there's a certain sense in which um, the thought makers inside these movements do read these books and they then boil down ideas to their, their core essence for, you know, tweets and YouTube videos and things like that. And they help to give the sense that this is not just a movement of anger or a movement of petty political persuasions, but it's actually a movement of real philosophical depth. So for example, let's take the, the traditional stuff. Cause I talk about that in the, the, the article in full stop a lot. Uh, traditionalism is this concept. It's a type of perennial philosophy. So basically uh, this idea that all religions are true in, in some way, except traditionalism goes a step forward and says that, Actually, it's the the hierarchies and the the, um, the specifics of the traditions themselves. They call it the, the exoteric aspects of those traditions themselves. And actually, a society, you know, thousands of years ago, when it was much more strictly hierarchical and in line with those specific religious traditions, that was a healthy society. But over the, the generations, we've devolved into an unhealthy society, one that's pernicious in its uh, rejection of caste and its uh, intermixing of races and its destruction of gender roles. And that's why we're in the dark age, the Kali Yuga, uh, the final age. And what this is, is a a series of traditions of really, really, really far right ideas that are meant to really help give people a language that goes a little bit deeper than, you know, common surface white nationalist talking points. Now, you know, people like Julia uh, Evola or Rene Guénon, I'm not sure if the people, the, you know, most of the alt-right followers are actually reading these books. They're dense and boring and tough to read. Um, but the point, that's not really the point. The point is to try and take those and create a canon of sorts. And inside that canon, there's an answer to all types of questions. And it runs so deep. And there's even dissension between people. There's discussion. There's a, It's a real political movement. And inside a real political movement, you have complicated books and big ideas. And that's what they have 
here too. At least that's what they pretend to have or they want to have or they create the the, the image that they have. And I think the, the other part about it is that there actually is a tradition of fascist philosophy. There is a tradition of people trying to find justifications for human inequality, um, for nationalism, uh, for violence and imperialism. And so they actually are able to kind of coalesce all these things together. One thing you'll see that's interesting at Countercurrents is that they bring in a lot of figures that don't have a lot in common. So, for example, they've talked about H.P. Lovecraft quite a bit. Well, like, you know, Lovecraft might be popular with horror uh, aficionados, but what does he offer to white nationalists except the fact that he is a fellow racist? And they do that with a lot of people. They pick at anything that they can kind of put into like their general category, and now they have a huge library of people to book from. See, these are our guys. H.P. Lovecraft, H.L. Mencken. They can go down the list. And so that's part of their effort to say that they actually have a whole community of themselves. They have artists of their own. They have writers of their own. They have deep thinkers and poets and philosophers and dreamers. And that's kind of the idea. And that's the wave in which Spencer rode into a certain amount of power. One question that does seem to have been somewhat contentious in how elements of the alt-right have approached it is what used to be termed the JQ or the Jewish question. And currently, given its uh, apparent uh, impasse, it seems likely that those anti-Semitic elements may come more to the fore. Can you speak to the role of anti-Semitic beliefs specifically in relation to the alt-right and how alt-right figures have attempted to negotiate that question? Yeah, anti-Semitism is really, really important. I, so I, I back up a little bit to this idea of a big tent. So the I think it's really – go back to the really early days of Richard Spencer talking about the alt-right and what he was trying to do with the website alternativeright.com. And what he was doing was actually – kind of putting a name on something that existed. And what existed was a big tent of people that he felt were like kind of dissidents to what we think of as like the conservative movement or general uh, republicanism or the or conservatism of the uh, William F. Buckley National Review type. And so he was talking about a, a pretty big tent of folks. And these were folks that were paleo-conservatives. Maybe they were paleo-libertarians or maybe they were anti-capitalist right-wingers, uh, white nationalists, anti-immigrant fanatics, uh, racialized, folkish pagans, traditionalists, um, you know, uh, kind of Malthusian environmentalists. There's a whole bunch of them. But there was also people who were, quote unquote, critical of Jewish power. Um, and so in the early days of the alt-right, this plays in really diffuse ways. There's a lot of talk about it, but it's not particularly that was clear, clear how uh, they're going to explain it. They really coalesce around one person. And that's Kevin McDonald. So Kevin McDonald was this you know, pretty prolific uh, evolutionary psychologist out of uh, University of California at Long Beach, uh, you know, published things like, you know, the development of wolves and stuff, stuff that's actually pretty well regarded as far as I can tell. But then at some point, he decided to turn his attention to the Jews. And what he wanted to do, essentially, what he did do was create a central theory of anti-Semitism. You know, anti-Semitism is explained on the far right in a whole bunch of different ways historically. You know, these are Christ killers, or maybe Christianity itself is a Jewish, uh, you know, perversion. Uh, they create capitalism because of their greedy. They create communism because they um, are anti-material or they're, they're uh, materialist rather than spiritual. There's all kinds of explanations for it. But what Kevin McDonald does is he centralizes it, and he says that Judaism itself is a group evolutionary strategy. It was invented by Jews so that they can effectively outcompete non-Jews for resources, and they do this with 
their kind of demonic religion, this Talmudic religion of rules and uh, kind of abstractions and things like that. And uh, all the ideologies that really make up the modern world, the competing ideologies of communism, capitalism, free markets, uh, materialism, uh, relativity, all these sorts of things. They're more like a, 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 a manifestation of Jewish ideas meant to sort of undermine proper Aryan man's instincts towards self-preservation and nationalism. And actually, more than that, it exploits the flaws inside the development of the of the Indo-Aryan peoples. And so um, what he does is he looks at like Jewish or, or left-wing social movements and tries to like pick out how many Jews are in them and basically creates this idea that Judaism developed um, along, around uh, what he thinks the true history of, of humanity is, which is the battle between races and peoples. What this does, it, this is a lot of things. First off, it, it really grounds itself in the idea that uh, history itself is about nations battling, that it's not so much like a history of progress or communities changing or uh, societies developing over time, but it is one of warring types of people, uh, a zero-sum game in which you either win or you lose. It's a, it's a really you know classic way to reimagine colonialism as just the natural uh, winner of a game we're all playing or something. What it also does is helps to explain why white people were so duped by people of color so as to uh, lose their racial purity and to give up their societies to liberalism um, and degeneracy. Um, it's because Jews who look like white people but are not and then use crypsis to enter our societies as a pernicious parasitic force can undermine those institutions using their group evolutionary strategy that's worked so well and has helped them uh, achieve dominance in finance and in the social sectors in Hollywood and things because of their high verbal intelligence and their high ethnocentrism. And so they can explain all kinds of things. You know, uh, the you know, uh, 1965 Immigration Act, which really opened restrictions that had been uh, put in place during the time of the Klan. Um, uh, that's, you know, because of Jewish influence. Um, you know, um, our social values have changed because of the Frankfurt School and their ability to kind of shift media in a very dishonest way by applying standards to uh, the goyim that they don't apply to themselves, such as uh, miscegenation or, uh, or uh, you know, queer acceptance or something like that. And so this idea, these ideas played well. This always was important in the alt-right. It was always there. Kevin McDonald was there since the early days of alternative right.com. Uh, Holocaust denial was there kind of in the background. Uh, people were always kind of critical of Jews. But th the thing is that Spencer Dixon didn't want that front and center. And, in, and you can listen kind of early podcasts and stuff like that. He really pushes back on the idea when he, if he's on like kind of even a more right wing, like a more like a neo-Nazi podcast or something, he'll really push back on the idea of the Jewish conspiracy. And then of course, Jared Taylor, who runs American Renaissance, used to have Jews speak at American Renaissance. And so he he would speak out and say, I think Jews are more like white people. So there was a couple of voices of, I guess, slight moderation amid the grueling anti-Semitism. But as the alt-right actually became more radical, uh, 2015, 2016, and that's about the time it kind of merged with the troll culture, um, that's when they kind of pushed virulent anti-Semitism even more so. Uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, Anti-Semitism is a really central part of their ideology. You need to kind of ramp it up for it to make sense. Um, they just wanted to uh, target particular enemies in the culture and uh, playing on images of Jewish uh, journalists and movie stars and politicians were, played really easily. And also the fact is that they, what they were merging with was really a conspiracy culture in a lot of ways. And anti-Semitism is a very central part 
of conspiracy theories. And so it actually helped them kind of bridge a little bit of the rhetorical gap. And at this point, there's no backing away from it. I mean, the, the, the anti-Semitism has become, because they put it as a, a central part of the narrative of how white people have, quote unquote, fallen to this point of white genocide, um, we're talking about virulent, violent kind of rage. Uh, they're responding to people that they believe are engaging in open genocide against them is destroying their nations, you know, uh, responsible for all kinds of terrible things or whatever. And so what we're seeing is actually an explosive moment of uh, kind of uh, reactive violence. Um, and there's no reason to believe that that will decline as the alt-right does take moments of kind of uh, a step back because from their public profile, um, that means that dissident members of even their movement, people who are even more radical than they are, tend to behave in hack the violence as sort of a desperate uh, behavior of violence. And uh, that's really targeted two places, Jews and Muslims. Well, speaking of which, and making the transition from uh, ideas to their rather violent practice, we've just seen the conclusion of a case in Portland involving a man who was convicted of attacking several people on public transport. Um, you're familiar with that case. Can you tell us what's happened? Yeah. So this is a case uh, in 2017 of uh, Jeremy Christian, who was a, a, a person that was attending far-right rallies uh, by this group Patriot Prayer, who also used to work with the Proud Boys, and then kind of amid a really Islamophobic rant and threats on a train, uh, on public transit. Um, a couple, of, a few men tried to intervene. He stabbed three of them, killed two of them. One of them was very seriously injured, but survived. Um, and so he obviously was arrested and uh, the trial just wrapped up uh, in the, within the last couple of days. And he was found guilty on all 12 counts. I think it, there's a couple of things. I mean, very few people doubted that he wasn't going to be found guilty. I mean, there was video of him doing this. Um, but what the defense did was essentially play on the idea that anti-fascism or the behavior of people intervening, even if they're not a part of like a formal anti-fascist movement is so violent that people actually have to react with violence to defend themselves. And that Jeremy Christian, the man who murdered these people was actually defending himself from these, the violence of these people intervening. And this is the kind of rhetoric that's used all across uh, the far right media. Sometimes not even the far right media, just the media in general to talk about anti-fascist activists and to kind of frame them as the aggressors, as the people who are instigating violence, and then you know groups like the Proud Boys are simply responding to it, even though that runs completely contrary to what we know about the facts of these kind of the history of these violence acts and where the statistics lie. And so, I I fear that this is not the only time that this kind of rhetoric is going to be used in a courtroom like this, and that it's going to be echoed outside of that courtroom, and it already is being. We've also seen uh, discussions about not only where the alt-right might be headed, but the white nationalist movement generally and I guess the fascist movement generally in terms of the movement away from, well, movementism, an attempt to construct a political and social movement towards more uh, terroristic forms of action uh, embodied by groups like Atom Waffen and the base and so on. What's your read of the current situation and the likelihood those acts will increase? We've had just recently in Australia the Director-General of uh, the National Intelligence Agency, ASIO, declare that as far as it's concerned, far-right extremism is now or should be regarded as being a real threat within Australia. And of course, 
Atomov and the base, those sorts of organisations are transnational. They comprise uh, actors in the US as well as Australia. So what's your kind of understanding of the current situation and what, what we might see in the future from those uh, actors? I think that there's a pretty predictable pattern for, for white nationalist movements. They try and ride into moments of, of mainstream respectability by combining themselves with other kind of, you know, collaborative movements. So, for example, in the during the, the fight over segregation, the, the third era Ku Klux Klan sort of allied with the white citizens councils that were, you know, kind of a suit and tie version of the Klan fighting for segregation and rode uh, their ideology of racial separatism into a semi-mainstream position to help them grow really profoundly. Um, you know, in the 80s, 90s, white nationalism rode that wave with uh, paleoconservatism, David Duke campaign, Pat Buchanan, things like that. And uh, today the alt-right did this with what we call the alt-light, which is a lot of those kind of internet uh, right-wing celebrities, Lauren Southern, um, you know, uh, Gavin McInnes, uh, Infowars, things like that. But eventually, the slightly more moderate people, you know, who have careers and some mainstream respectability, they tend to abandon the far right, and then the far right tries to stand on its own, and then it fails to do so. So that's what Charlottesville was. It was sort of its coming out uh, event. There's been a lot of far or fascist or far right rallies before that, but there was usually a mix of the crowd at Charlottesville. There really was just uh, the the kind of the furthest of the first furthest far right, you know, the alt right, neo Nazis, Klansmen, things like that. And so that was sort of their like, let's we can do this on our own. We don't need the slightly more moderate people. And then once they get hit back from anti-fascist organizing, from deplatforming, just from being, you know, dro- losing their ability to connect with the mainstream, then they start hitting a period of decline. And then that's when these sort of um, extreme acts of terrorist violence tend to take place. That doesn't mean that they don't have extreme terrorist acts all the time, because that's sort of endemic to the movement. But this, you'll see a, a peak of it. And that's the period we're in. We're in the period of synagogue shootings, of... Uh, unpredictable bombing plots of really extreme ideologies like that of Adam Waffen, satanic Nazism, um, and kind of other kinds of accelerationist white supremacist terrorism. Um, so I would like to say that since the base has been kind of infiltrated by the FBI and Adam Waffen has had, you know, been busted up for a number of reasons that we've seen the last of it, but I really don't know that. Um, I don't see enough yet to know, if we have seen the peak of that kind of violence. And I, I, I kind of doubt we have. I mean, the alt-right was larger than any above-ground white nationalist movement in a couple of decades. And so I can think we can imagine that the the sort of terrorist wing of that is likewise going to be quite large. And they drum, they drummed up so much rage inside a movement that they were not able to answer for, that they were not able to funnel into their above ground operation, that that has a safety valve and that safety valve is violence. Well, Shane, we'll have to leave it there on that uh, cheery note. If people want to find you online, uh, where can they do so? You can find me on Twitter at at Shane underscore Burley one or at shaneburley.org. Awesome. Thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Interesting chat, Andy. I hope ASIO is listening. They might find something of benefit from uh, Shane's words. Who knows? Thanks very much to Shane Burley for joining us today. Uh, that is all we've got time for. But uh, there's always time to go to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. 
and uh, pledge your support to the station and make sure you select a little thing that says Yena Pesaran when you do so. We'd really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you later.